Let's do this as a starting point. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us all today, that we would hear your good news and your call upon our lives. Call us to lives that are bigger than ourselves, lives of joy. Mold and shape all of us. Mold and shape and speak to all of us. All of us. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So next Sunday we're completing our Scent series where we've been looking at the book of Acts. And we've said in this series that the book of Acts is united by an idea. And the idea is is that all of us were created to live a life that is bigger than just being about ourselves. See, one of the things that you do and I do as a human being is that we naturally make the world about ourselves, about what we like, about what we don't like, about how we think that things should be. And then we find communities that are mostly echo chambers that reinforce what we already think about the world. Okay? That's how we naturally live because it's far more comfortable. You're not going to grow. You're not going to learn, but it's comfortable. Okay? So we do that. And what, the, the, what unites the book of Acts is that these folks were not allowed to just live comfortable lives, just like you and I aren't supposed to. Because when we live these really small, controlled, safe lives, every day might feel a little predictable, but there's a bit of us that dies inside every day when that happens. Because you and I were not meant to live stories that are small and safe and controlled at every corner. That sometimes we are meant to swing our legs over the side of the boat and to stand up and to see what it is that God wants to do in our lives. And so the book of Acts is the story of ordinary people, imperfect people who didn't have all the scriptures memorized, who didn't have, you know, PhDs in theology, who didn't know how to, um, you know, do a lot of the stuff that makes us feel insecure, and that they were called and sent out into the world to be witnesses to God's love, to God's grace, to God's truth, in this world, and that they were kind of called into that story, and the Spirit's just going, hey, go, go to your schools, go to your work, go to do this, and you're like, I'm kind of insecure, I don't have all the answers, I don't, God's going, if you'll step out, my Spirit will give you words to say, it will be with you, it will help you to work, and that you will become of a part of a bigger existence than just everything being safe and controlled and all about me and my comfort. So that's, what the, that's what's been, been uniting this, this series. And so uh, this is the second to last Sunday where we're talking about this. Now, this last part of Scripture that we're looking at is related to last week. So I need to recap in a few seconds what last week was about um, for you. What we said is that we were looking finally at the person of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes so much of the New Testament, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, all, Romans, all these amazing books of the Bible. And we saw that Paul was, at the beginning of the book of Acts, was not a Christian. He was Jewish Pharisee, a leader in the Jewish community, who in Acts chapter 9, we read, encounters Jesus as he is riding to the city of Damascus in Syria. And he is knocked off his horse and encounters the person of Jesus and is converted. His heart is changed, and he becomes a Christian. And part of how Paul is sent out is that part of what's unique about Paul's call is that he is then called to go to these different cities and towns and to be an evangelist, to spread the good news, to found churches, okay? So that's what he does. And up until last week, Paul had kind of a rhythm for doing that. He might have been like a a, a good church person who had his rhythm and had his strategic plan and had his committee and everything worked a certain way. And what he did is he did what made sense to him. We said last week, Paul was from the village of Tarshish. That's where he was born. And Tarshish is in modern-day Turkey. 
And in the book of Acts, where Paul has been going is in and around Tarshish. He's been very close to Tarshish. So these different cities are in modern-day Turkey, where he's been going as well. And it makes sense because it's the world he knows, right? It's kind of his home turf. He knows the cultures. He knows the systems. He knows the traditions. He knows maybe the languages. You know, he has a good understanding of that. And his prescription was to go to these, these towns, and he would always start in the same place. He'd go to the synagogue. Now, so not only was he kind of on his home turf in towns and villages that he knew, he'd go to the synagogue, where as a Pharisee, he had been trained in how these people work. So he's going to the place that makes logical sense for him. And he would talk about, he would unroll the like, scroll of Isaiah or something, he would read it, and then he would talk about and teach how Jesus of Nazareth was the embodiment and the fulfillment of those prophets. Well, that worked great. But as we said last week, God doesn't want us to live really small, sheltered, controlled lives where we're playing it safe all the time. God's inviting us into a story that is scarier and yet better than that. God is constantly doing that. And so Paul has uh, something happened to him that I promise you as we're entering into this year, every one of us is going to have, which is that God interrupts Paul's life. God interrupts Paul's safe, secure, controlled little existence where everything worked the way it was supposed to work and was predictable and, and, and kind of fruit basket turnover, right? Just kind of like turned it all over and all of a sudden gives Paul a vision where it's like now you're supposed to go to a new place, to Macedonia. That's what we looked at last week. Now, friends, Macedonia is a really critical name because, as we said, this is not in modern-day Turkey. Paul is not just being called, not don't go to this village, go to this one. He's being sent to Macedonia, which is in Greece. He has to go across a body of water and enter into a place that he doesn't know very well, that he's not been trained in, and to go and proclaim the gospel there. And that's where we find him this week. He's going now into the Greek capital of Athens, this great cultural metropolitan area of philosophy that had been shaping the world for hundreds of years and is still shaping your and my world today. Aristotle, all these kind of folks still shaping our world today. Paul is sent there, and this is the story of what he does. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I now proclaim to you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, speak to us all through your word, through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I had some friends that were involved with youth ministry. They've been friends of mine for a long, long time. And uh, they had kind of a great way of reaching high schoolers, teenagers. And they had this philosophy of ministry that they said that they did ministry with teenagers on their turf in their terms. Did ministry with teenagers on their turf 
in their terms. What they didn't do was like, hopefully that they would show up at church one hour a week, right? That's not what they did. They didn't sit in a church building and go, I hope they come, I hope they come, I hope they come. And then they show up, maybe some of them, and you have an hour with them and then they leave. And then you spend the next six days and 23 hours hoping they'll come and hoping they'll come back, right? It's not about that. It's about being sent out and going, where do they hang out? Where is their turf? And what are the terms that we can present the gospel? And we're probably not going to walk onto a high school campus and start talking about um, Calvin's idea of the doctrination of justification versus sanctification, right? That's probably not where you want to begin for any of us. And so they said is that we want to do ministry on their turf in their terms. And I don't know that there's a better way of summing up what we see Paul doing here in Athens than that philosophy of ministry. Think about it. He's doing ministry on their turf. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we said, Paul's strategy was he would go into a city and he would go to the synagogue. Well, when you're in Jerusalem and and a Christian, the synagogue, the temple, was like the central point of the culture of the city, of worship life. It was the central part, corporate life of the city. In Athens, the synagogue was not that. The synagogue was not where people in Greece would come together to talk about politics or what was good or what was right. And so Paul eventually finds himself at this place called the Areopagus, okay? Some of the Bibles that you have at home may translate that as Mars Hill. The Areopagus was a very unique and special place in Athens because if you've ever been to Athens, if you've seen a picture of Athens, the dominant feature of Athens is the Parthenon, right? The great temple in Athens that's up on this massive hill, it overlooks the whole city, and it's a temple to Athena. And the, um, the, the Areopagus was on that hill. It wasn't at the top where the Parthenon is, but it was kind of halfway up that hill. And it was this space that was designed to discuss where philosophers and politicians and other leaders would come together to discuss what was good or what was true, okay? So if Paul has a truth claim that he wants to make, he needs to not sit in the synagogue hoping that people come to listen to him. But he is sent out to where truth is debated, where truth is talked about. So the Areopagus is where he's sent. And secondly, he does ministry on their terms, okay? And what that means is, is that Paul's, if, we, if you remember, Paul's strategy would have been to go into a temple, open up the scroll from like Isaiah from the Old Testament, read it, and then teach how Jesus was the embodiment of those teachings of Isaiah and those prophecies. Well, guess what? In the Areopagus in Athens, no one would have known Isaiah, no one would have had any idea what that was. If he had done that and followed, well, this is how we've always done it, and this is how it's always worked in the past, it would have made no sense to them. So Paul has to figure out how in their worldview do I talk about the love of Jesus, which is eternal and timeless? How do I do that? Well, he studies Athenian culture. He studies the city. He studies the values they have and how they operate. And what he finds is, is that the people of Athens are like really have a huge value on inclusion, Okay? of including everything, everything that you could think of. So while there was this huge temple to Athena, the Parthenon, the famous Parthenon in Athens, there were all throughout the city all these different temples to every god they could think of and knew, right? But not only that, they didn't want to just build temples to the gods that they knew. They didn't want to leave anybody else out either. And so they built this temple to an unknown god. That was just basically to say any other gods in the realm of gods— that may exist out there somewhere. We don't want to leave any of them out. And so all of them are sort of included here. This is like, you know what I mean? Like on a job, this duties to be assigned, right? It's like everything else sort of falls there. But that was this value. And so Paul says, I want to talk to you about this God whom you yourselves know you don't have full knowledge of. 
This is the person of Jesus. He does it on their turf at the Areopagus in their terms, using a worldview that they had already built themselves to talk about Jesus. Does that make sense? On their turf in their terms. So here's what I want to do. This is where the the stolen whiteboard will come in handy, I think. I don't really think it matters all that much if you all for the next 15 minutes become experts on how Athenian culture worked and how Paul did this, and then you kind of walk out of here going, oh, it was interesting. That's how Athens worked, and this is what Paul did. The unifying point of this series is that you and I are sent out just as Paul was to the culture and city around us. The point is how you live this day and this week. And you are sent out as imperfect as you are, without having perfect knowledge of the scriptures and theology and PhDs, you are sent out to school, to work, to your families, to your neighbors this week, to embody the love of Jesus Christ to people who need to hear it. And that gives us purpose in our life. That's why we exist. But we need to be good translators to our culture of how to do that. Paul does that really well. He reads the culture and he frames the gospel in a way that they can understand. So here's what I want to do. We are going to describe for the next few minutes our culture, the world we live in, Austin, Texas in 2016 in the United States of America. How would we describe it? Now, a couple of rules before we do this. This is a sermon, but this is not your sermon, okay? This is not a time for you to preach or go on your soapbox about what you think or anything else. We all love what you think. There's blogs for that. This is not that time. You are relegated to a word or phrase to describe this, okay? And then, and then we stop, okay? Word or phrase. And we're not trying to either say what is good or bad. We're just trying to describe it. How would we describe what is unique about our culture? Or another way to think of it, what if someone like Paul, an outsider from a different culture, a different country, came to us and visited us today? What would they notice that is unique about our world here, our daily lives here in Austin, Texas? Okay? And we're going to write some of these up on the board. Now, as we're doing this, I want you to think about what those are. I want you to know that when, this, when the Lord doled out spiritual gifts, he did not give me the gift of handwriting, and he did not give me the gift of spelling. I'm admitting that up front. Okay? So just go with it. Just go with it. All right. I think we're going to try to put this up on the screens. But word or phrase, describing our culture today... How would you describe it? Yes. What's that? Success. All right, say, I'm going to give you like another sentence to say, Rusty, success. Tell me what you mean by that. Oh. We, are, we want it. We're obsessed with it. We what value. What, what, is, what were you thinking of when you thought success? Yes, so there's this idea of, right, and we've talked about this in our culture. What is different? When we first meet someone, we often ask, what do you do? Right? We make a lot of value assumptions. There, there are many cultures around the world they don't ask that question to meet you. That is unique to us because we place a lot of value on how they answer that. And success is a part of that. Yeah, Brian. Hyper-individualistic. I can... <laughs> Individualistic. Squared. Okay. We need a different color. Darker color. Okay. Um, can we, can, we'll just, we'll go with a different color next. Um, that says individualistic. Very, very, very individualistic. And there are a lot of reasons for that. This is a huge hallmark of our culture today. 
Okay, so thank you for that. Yeah, another one. I'm going to, yes. Materialistic. Materialistic. Let's try green. Let's see if green works better. No, that's not going to work better. <laughs> Materialistic. Callie, give me, uh, give me examples of where you see that. Right. So we worship things, okay? Materialistic, and this is true. This is where advertising works, for example, right? Advertising works in a certain way, and the way advertising works is to put something on a magazine cover on a website that you see, and the idea is to look at it and go, oh my gosh, if maybe if my life looked like that, we would have the perfect smiles and marriage that those people have on there, right? And so I buy and consume to have a life that's more like that. So Americans, we consume more than any other country in the world. We're not happy. Studies show we're not very happy comparatively, but buddy, we're gonna keep buying to try to get there. The next, base, next great vacation, the next clothes, the next experience, the next thing. Consume, consume, consume. So materialistic, and you just have to, none of these markers are working totally great. Maybe the choir choristers knew that. <laughs> the, the markers that went with the boards don't go, yes. And it leads to consumerism. Yes. Busyness. Should we try a new color? What is that? Yeah, it's not working really at all. Okay, we're going to stick with, we'll stick with fuchsia. Um, we're busy. Very, very busy. Now, think about this in terms of Busy, individual, everything else. I don't even know if fuchsia is a color. If not, that may not be it. What, what is driving that? What, what is unique about our world today? Yes. Fear. fear. Yes. Fear is very much a part of our world today, our politics today, our culture today, right? What else? Competition. Competition. Yeah. All right. Comp. Uh, Shun. All right, one other one. Think about this. I, I, there, there's, yes. What's that? Happy. Yes, we very much want to be happy. That's sort of the consumerism thing here. Happy. But I want you to think, what's driving this? What, what's, yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's totally good. Yes. Caring. Yes. That's a very big stated value, right? Of people wanting to be caring for each other. We're missing something here that sociologists would say is the driving thing that's causing a lot of this change. Yeah, James. Status? Yeah? There is an instrument. See, I need you guys to know, the other three services got this. Yeah, we're going to try one or two more. Thank you. Treasures in heaven for you because the sermon was starting to spiral out of control. <laughs> I want you to know that Jesus is very pleased with you for that answer, okay? Because the sermon was, 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 was deteriorating rapidly. Friends, look, if you think about this, the defining change in our culture always in history shows this, is that it is driven by technology, okay? People don't wake up and start changing, okay? Something drives change. Think about it this way. The last great change we saw in the church 
Okay, and it wasn't just the church. It was all throughout culture in the West, in Europe, was the Reformation. The Reformation happened about 500 years ago, and that's when the Protestant church broke away from the Roman Catholic church. What technology was the origin in many ways of that change? The printing press. Thank you. Jesus loves all of you that answered that way. We're continuing in good and fruitful paths. The printing press did. Why? Well, all of a sudden, this is how churches worked before. Churches worked in a certain way in Europe before the printing press, and most churches only had services in Latin, meaning that you and I would go into church, the priest would read from the Bible in Latin and lead the service in Latin, and everyone leave, and we would have no idea what was said. We just know we had to be there if we wanted to go to heaven, okay? The printing press started translating the Bible at a mass level in different languages, and so people could actually open it and read. And all of a sudden, they started reading and going, that's not what the guy in church in the robes is saying every Sunday, okay? People didn't wake up one day and go, let's start a reformation. Technology drove a change because of the sharing of ideas. Do you see that? And technology is driving, many sociologists say, the unique changes that are happening in our culture and our world today. And the first and foremost of that Al Gore invented it like 15, 20 years ago, if you read some rumors, is the I word, the internet. The internet is the game changer that has, has completely revolutionized our world, right? Did you guys see, and I, this story would work so much better if I knew if he had won or not, but did you guys see that there is the gold medal favorite for the javelin in the Olympics? There's a guy, a gentleman from Kenya, who learned to make his own javelins and the techniques of throwing the javelin on YouTube. I don't know if he's won. I don't know. The story would be a lot better if I knew if he'd won, but he was the favorite going in. He what? He did well. It's still a good story. So, all this is going online. This is awesome. So, but in that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge change, right? Or change for the church. I don't have to wake up go hear some guy drone on or some woman drone on and teaching a sermon that's kind of boring, I can sit at home and I can watch the Dalai Lama talk about this. Or I can watch four other pastors who are a whole lot more gifted than that person is explaining this in much better ways and I can stay in bed with my cup of coffee while I'm doing it. Right? I mean, it changes everything. Now, what has this led to? This has led to what sociologists tell us, and this is really important, guys, because this is so much of our world, is that we are lonely. Now, technology is not the cause of our loneliness. We are. We, it's not blaming technology. Technology is an amazing resource. But here's why. All of a sudden, think about it, I don't have to go to the grocery store and actually talk to people or endanger seeing people from Covenant while I'm there when I just want to go in my baseball caps and, cap and flip-flops. I can have it ordered and come to my house. I don't have to interact with anybody, right? I can even pay online so the person just drops it off at my front door. I don't even have to talk to them if I don't want to. And if I want to complain about what they did, I send an email to somebody about it. Or Instagram... Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, we devise a world of ourselves that makes us look a certain way, right? And I've laughed about this before. Example of that is Christmas cards. 
take 50 Christmas cards to get the perfect one where me and Beth and Miriam and Hannah are all smiling and no one's blinking and no one's fighting and no one's crying and I'm not shouting at anybody. And we're all sitting there smiling in the perfect family. We can have 50 photos taken. We can look at them with our photographer and go, yeah, don't they? That, no, 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 that one. That's the one we want. It projects exactly what we want about our family and we all look normal and we all look happy and we all look successful all on, an in, uh, on our individualistic selves. Technology is so much of what it's the root of driving these values of success and individualism and competition, right? I, I know people that put out what they've done in their jobs or in school that turn out to be half-truths. Hello, Ryan Lochte, right? <laughs> like telling a story and embellishing it or lying a whole lot, and then all of a sudden, because technology allows me to present the version that I want to present of what happened in my test or what happened in church. Unfortunately, technology can also come back to reveal other stuff, right? This is the world we live in today, friends. This is the world we live in. Now, this individualism, this technology has led to a change, and this is what I want to end with. It's a change that's really important. It's led to the culture in which we live, and you and I are called to be witnesses in this world today. This culture. And this culture isn't just like people outside. This is us, right? This is us. Think about it. Think about it this way. My grandfather started a construction company in Atlanta, Georgia in the 1940s. And he drove a Buick because it was a good, sensible, American-made car that was affordable, and that's what you drove. Now, Atlanta was a great city to be in in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. The city is like being in the construction industry in Austin right now. It just exploded. And so he did really, really well. That man drove a Buick every day of his life because he was loyal to what that car was. Do you know how I make decisions about how to buy cars? Safety and financing. I don't care what the brand is. We have a new filter of individualism, of success, of materialism and consumerism, which is, here's how things work. What's in it for me? I'm the centerpiece of things. How how does the world revolve around me? Now, here's what I want us to finish with. You and I are sent to this world. We are this world. It forms and shapes us. What does the gospel have to uniquely say to this culture? What is the gospel? Paul framed it for the Athenians in a way they could understand. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to uniquely say in this particular culture? What are some of the values of the gospel that would be countercultural or revolutionary or life-giving in this? This is still raising hands time. Yeah. Community. Thank you. Community community that is not just about having more and more friends, but is confessional community. And we're going to talk about this next. Do you know the reason that we're all here? The reason all of us are here is because we are here admitting that we are broken and need a Savior. There's a different kind of community that comes with that, because it's not based on an image or success or competition or fear of how others are going to think of us or how we measure up. We are saying from the beginning, I am not perfect. I am not ultra successful. There are parts of my life that are a train wreck. What does it mean to walk together in that? You know, the greatest Christmas card we ever sent out 
The greatest Christmas card we ever sent out was not the perfect family. The greatest Christmas card we ever sent out was Miriam was two, and Hannah was like three months old, and we could not get them. We dressed them up for our Christmas card that year. We could not get them to smile or do anything but scream and shriek for like an hour and a half. We took like 100 photos. None of them worked. And in the end, we put one where they were both screaming and crying on a Christmas card, and underneath he wrote, Joy. We seriously did, and send that out to everybody we knew. And it's still the Christmas card that everybody remembers because there was some level of looking at it going, yeah, that's what Christmas is actually like, right? (laughs) None of us take photos of that and go, best Christmas ever, so amazing. But that's what it's often like, right? And there was this degree of going, we're not here trying to impress you. Guess what? We're not that impressive. We're really not. Who's the community that we can walk into and when people go, how are you doing? We actually say, well, actually, we've been fighting for 24 hours. How are you guys doing? How do you pray with us in that? That's where we're going to change in that kind of community. That sort of community in this world will shine like stars in the world around us. And we've got to embody that. You've got to be willing to embody a question, question one of my mentors asked me. Who are you stepping off the pedestal with? Who knows you for who you really are? Who really knows you, Thomas? Because only with that are you going to grow and change and become something that God wants you to be. Man, the gospel absolutely calls us into community of authenticity and realism. And if we don't do that, we are continuing to propagate a cultural lie that leads to death. That's what a big deal intimate community is. It's revolutionary. Give me one other example. What else would the gospel just light on fire in this world that we're describing here? Yeah. Polarization. There is something unique in that kind of community, absolutely, Reem, that comes together, again, with this confessional nature, was to say, you are God and I am not. Part of the reason our our communities are so polarized, our politics, our Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton world is so polarized right now is because we have in our politically correct world, which is another thing we could put up there, and the other services did that as well. Not that your list isn't good. Your list is a good list. But politically correct was up there as well. What that creates is, is that we don't want to offend anybody, and so we just go to our own camps where everyone's like us and reinforces what we already think about the world, and it leads to increasing and increasing and increasing polarization. We are seeing in our politics, we are seeing in our culture all over the place right now, because we do not know how to have a real conversation where we don't agree. We don't know how to do it anymore. We have lost the ability because we don't want anyone to be offended ever. Well, what does it mean when you start by going and going, I have got some really strong opinions on stuff. You might not know that, but I do. And I acknowledge from the beginning that I am not God and therefore I could be wrong on every single one of them. Man, that changes stuff. Unfortunately, the church is often just blended in with the polarization in politics. And it flies in the face of the gospel. One last thing. Think about it. one last thing. Yeah. Yes. Biblical leadership. How many people you serve versus how many people follow you. Success. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there's like so many things that as my kids are becoming so much smarter than I am with technology, it's like, oh, well, this person has like 30,000 followers on YouTube. And it's like, doing what? Right? Like, who cares? What, what, does that mean they're fulfilled? Does that mean that they have this great life? No, it doesn't mean it. It's meaningless. 
But there's this cultural narrative of, of success beating like who's following and how big the crowds are versus saying this idea of who am I serving on a daily basis? Because you know what? Consumerism, that is a lie. You don't become fulfilled by getting the right vacation or going on the right thing. It comes by serving other people and giving yourself away and being extravagantly generous. It's why people go to Belize and come back saying, if those people got half of what I got from it, it's in giving that we receive. flies in the face of these narratives. Friends, this is us. This is our world. And today you are sent into that world to embody something different, to embody something good, to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ in all kinds of ways. What does this mean for you? What does this look like for you to live out this counterculture and to invite others to come and do it with you? This is where there's life and joy. What does this look like for you? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, lead us, and guide us. Be our vision to follow this call that the world would look different because we are here. Lord, we pray for your guidance, for your spirit as it gave Paul words to say in a world he didn't totally understand. Give us words to say. Give us lives that other people will look at and wonder what's going on because they see something different in us. May we do so together as your people, your sent people, into this world that you called us to go to. We ask that this would be your spirit's work in and through each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.